Today the scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Good morning. Hard to believe we're more than halfway through February. And my oldest daughter actually has a birthday this month. Uh, She's a leap year baby, so she actually gets a birthday. And then as God would have it in his kind providence, we're talking about husbands and wives on Sunday following Valentine's Day. I was able to go to uh, King Supers twice on Valentine's Day morning for food items, of course, milk, cheese, things like that. And it was endearing how many... Young men, 20s and 30s year old, were just streaming out. Um, I just paused for a second. One guy had a huge teddy bear and flowers, and others had chocolates, and other created King Super gifts. Um, if it were any other day, it would have been fun to just go, you messed up, didn't you? You know, but, but seeing that it was February 14th and Valentine's Day, um, it was endearing. Sin, which is the transgression or breaking of God's laws has had a devastating effect on humanity. So when we see glimpses like that, even among an unbelieving society, um, we have much to be thankful for of God's common grace to us. Uh, But sin has spawned pride, selfishness, cruelty, hate, and seeming endless hurt. And that, that ripple of sin's effect, that ripple effect of sin, Um, has caused many to retaliate and others to sort of retreat and build up an emotional wall so that they can no longer be hurt again by other people's sin. And there is no place where sin has had more disastrous effects than in the home. Because the society is made up of home units, and so it's within the home that sin's devastating effects has taken a, a huge toll and wreaked havoc. Home, the very place that should be filled with love and acceptance and openness and vulnerability and safety has been in many cases shattered. And so this letter to the Ephesians, to these believers, is now going to address relationships between a husband and a wife. It'll move and address relationships between parents and children as well. 
as between bond servants and masters, but this morning we're just going to sort of hone in on this one relationship that is addressed in this letter to the Ephesian believers, and that is between husband and wife. If you notice, when Carrie read the passage for us, um, this text is actually a big picture view of marriage. Something that is true about Christ and his people, his love for his people, the church. So that means this morning, when we get into this sort of a traditional household code passage, that this text is for everyone. Whether you're single and content, or single and lonely, or happily married, or enduring a marriage, or unhappily married, or widowed, or divorced, or remarried, or abandoned, any context, this passage is for you because of the bigger sort of Christological picture of Jesus' love for his people, that intimate, close love that he has for every one of us. Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, if you open your scriptures to Ephesians 5, look at verse 32 with me. Of course, this is the end, sort of the second to last verse of our full passage this morning. He says this in Ephesians 5.32, I am saying that it, what he just said about husbands and wives, refers to Christ and the church. Now, here's what remains in Ephesians. We've, we started in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to finish up in chapter 5 today. That leaves us one more chapter. There are two final applications that Paul's going to make. Sort of two, he's going to speak truth into two clear dimensions of life. The first dimension, and I want you to see this in Ephesians 5, beginning down at verse 22, is practical and visible. That's relationships at home and at work. So the question is, for, for us here and maybe for the young ones watching if the gospel really does transform lives, if the gospel changes everything, the best proof of that will be found where? The best proof of that will be found where we are most at home. Husbands and wives, parents and children. Therefore, we are given specific instruction about the order of relationships. The second dimension, as you move into Ephesians 6, the mid part of Ephesians 6, is a spiritual dimension, the unseen, invisible realm. And Paul then gives us specific instruction about spiritual warfare. The first dimension is visible and tangible. We clearly interact with those relationships every day. I've already interacted with my wife, with one of my children, Right? We interact every single day. We wake up, they're there, they're visible, they're tangible. There's a result. The second dimension is invisible. And in some sense, intangible. But here's what shocks many people. We clearly interact with the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. That's what Ephesians 6 says every day as well. There is a visible realm and an invisible realm that we interact with. Ephesians 6 is going to show that spiritual combat it just lays right over domestic relationships. If our Christian life is authentic and real, it must be able to live out the gospel truth in both realms, both at home and at work and in the invisible spiritual warfare each of us faces. This week, my wife was watching a documentary on Abraham Lincoln. 
the narrator said that apparently Abraham Lincoln gave his wife a book on marriage with a heavy message. If you've done any reading about Lincoln and his marriage, you'll know that it was not one of those sort of display showcase marriages. The author of that book said, and of course Lincoln would underline this, marriage can be a source of great joy or it can be a fountain of misery of a quality absolutely infernal. Evidently, Lincoln underlined that part and handed it to his wife. A fountain of misery. Now, if anybody in here, any man in here says amen to that, I will spiritually lay hands on you for your wife. Here's what we need to do, though. Let's make, we've got to be clear as we get into this text. Ephesians 5 is not a detailed manual on a marriage made in heaven. Not as we would use that phrase. Or how to avoid a marriage of infernal misery. Though if applied properly, it can prevent some of that. This passage is not intended to function like a how-to book on marriage. It's too simple. It's too big picture. It is not a devotional book for couples. If you sit down and read Ephesians 5.22 down to Ephesians 5.33, you will be disappointed if that's what you are looking for. It is, however, a broad overview. I want you to catch these two words of authority and submission. God's divine design in specific relationships. See, there's too many variables. I mean, I'm just looking out here uh, at couples that I have shared life with for years now. There's too many variables for Sid and Carol because they're so much unlike Jimmy and Hildegard. I'm trying to use names of people that aren't in here who are different than Poindexter and Polly, who are very so not like Max and Greta. There's too many variables of every single married person in here. Ephesians is not going to address all the complexities of your specific relationship. Everyone's context and pressures are different. When we studied jujitsu, they would train us to find pressure points. You could actually manipulate a wrist of a very large, strong individual and with the right turn and bend with a single hand, you could put them down on your knees and you could disarm a gun from them. It's called a pressure point. Now go back to what we, the two applications we have left remaining. We have household relationships and spiritual warfare. What Satan loves to do is he loves to find the specific pressure points in your life, in your relationships. And he will manipulate that pressure point. And those pressure points primarily are between husband and wife and parents and children and employee and employer. And so these two realms, these two applications are not far removed. These two applications overlap one another. Pressure points in all of our situations, our children, age, number, temperament, and gender. No one's situation is the same. Extended family, in-laws, or outlaws, depending on your experience. Work context and situation, personalities, a wayward family member, health conditions, financial stability, friendships, addictions, and all the subtle relational nuances that make every relationship unique. Ephesians 5 will not speak into all those, but what it will do is give you the broad divine structure 
of how these things are supposed to conduct themselves. This is what it will do. It will give you the bigger picture so that the smaller details have a good foundation. It will show you God's divine design for Christian relationships that display something about His love, His care, and His nurturing. That's really what these pictures do. All the pictures He's about to portray are, as as someone said, are embedded portraits of redeemed relationships. The husband-wife picture is an embedded portrait of Jesus' love for the church. The parent-child relationship models something of our relationship to the Father. It also models Jesus' relationship to the Father. Even the master-bondservant relationship teaches us something of Jesus as a servant to the Father's will and of our being good servants of God. Now, Paul has already said something about our relationship to Him through His Spirit. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to quickly look at three texts and then move into our text for this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. If you just glance down, it says this about the Holy Spirit, that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been marked and protected. Turn to Ephesians 4, verse 30. In this relationship, even though you are sealed and marked and kept, we are told that we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. That is to make the Holy Spirit exceedingly sorrowful. And there's a list of things that make Him exceedingly sorrowful. Things like anger and bitterness and slander. Things that actually can happen in our own homes. Look at verse chapter 5, verse 18. He exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit, to obey His promptings. Now look at, the, look at verse 21 of chapter 5. This is the hinge verse that sort of functions like the front door of going from these, what does it look like to be Spirit-filled or Spirit-controlled and this hinge verse that swings into the home and starts to explain these relationships. Look at what it says. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now obviously, I want you to note this. This cannot mean that everybody submits to everybody. That doesn't work. That doesn't even work within your own home, really. You can already sense how countercultural this is going to be by looking at the very next verse. I'm going to just let you read it. We're going to get to that in a second. With permissiveness being in vogue and individual freedom of expression demanded by force, the idea of submission seems like a relic, doesn't it? It's like this outdated, out-of-fashion, provincial teaching. So let's be clear. Submission does not mean that harsh oppression should not be challenged or that true, true liberation movements should not be championed. Nothing we are about to see in Ephesians 5-6 to prevents us from working towards true freedom by preventing human exploitation, abuse, or brutality. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus who treated women with respect and honor in a culture that sidelined them and devalued them. If you read the life of Jesus, He's surrounded with women who care for Him and whom He loves appropriately and with holiness. It was Jesus who said, let the little children come to Me. 
When the children were despised and pushed away, even his own disciples wanted to keep the children from coming to Jesus. It was Jesus who honored and respected women and Jesus who said, no, let the children come. It was Jesus who subjected himself to manual labor as a carpenter, working with his own hands, and then eventually washing the disciples' feet. And he says this, I am doing this so you know that I am among you as one who what? Serves. You're going to see these relationships in Ephesians 5, and none of them is contradictory to the attitudes and teaching of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about authority and submission. God has designed all human relationships, including marriage, with authority exercised in a loving way and submission given willingly. Those are going to be two important sort of concepts to understand. What follows in verse 521, where it says submitting to one another out of fear of Christ or out of reverence for Christ, are three Christian examples of submission. I want you to see these. Look at verse 22. That is why, I'm not going to read the the reference because I want to show you the structure here. These are three examples of authority and submission. That is why wives are addressed before their husbands in verse 22 and told to what? Don't be afraid of the word. (laughs) It's a biblical word. And are told to submit to them. That is why children, look at chapter 6, verse 1, are addressed before their parents and are told to what? Obey them. And then verse 5 of chapter 6, that is why bondservants are addressed before their masters and are told to what? Obey them. See, this is not an exhaustive manual on marriages or parenting or employee-employer relationships. It is clearly giving you a structure, a divine design of how these relationships are to be structured on the basis of authority and submission. Paul turns to the influence of the Spirit's control to the very place where we truly are who we are in our home. If you want to know who I really am, if you want to know what I'm really like, how awesome my jokes are, talk to my family. They know me for who I really am. They know me in the morning. They know me when I'm hungry. They know me when I'm tired. They have known me for however old they are. Terms related to difficult cultural issues must be defined. Submission is one of those terms. So here is what the term itself means. It means to arrange under another. It means to obey one's leadership. It means to yield to one's admonition or advice. Here's what is happening, even even among broader evangelicalism, is they're trying to change the word to submit to mean act in love or act with considerateness. This is going to be very important for us to understand and sort of keep the teeth in the text. The word for submit in 522 is used elsewhere. For sake of time, I will will mention the references, but I don't want you to turn there. I will read them. This term submit is used of demons being subject to the disciples in Luke 10, verse 17. It says that the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So clearly, to change the meaning of submit in that text to act in love or be considerate cannot fit. 
That term is also used of the universe being subject to Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.27 and Ephesians 1.22. It is used of unseen spiritual powers being subject to Jesus. It is used of the church being subject to Christ in Ephesians 5.24, of Christians being subject to God in Hebrews 12.9 and James 4.7. And in each of those cases, to change the meaning of submit, to act in love or be considerate, does not fit. So we can't change the word to accommodate to a culture who looks at this as an offense. What is interesting about the, the relationships I just mentioned is none of these relationships is ever reversed. For example, husbands are never told to submit to their wives, nor masters to servants, nor disciples to demons, nor God to Christians. There's a clear set order in that structure. But I want to be very clear, the command to wives, remember it's a command to her, not to who? Command is not what? Husbands, make your wives. That's not the command. It is a command given specifically to the wife about her own husband, not even to all men. The command to wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply inferior personhood or spirituality or lesser importance. You will never see that in the text. There is equal dignity but different God-appointed roles. Equality of value and worth, but that is not synonymous with equality of role and function. Matter of fact, Peter, in his household code passage, affirms this equality of worth when he writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, wives are, listen to what he says, heirs with you, he's talking to husbands, of the grace of life, equal standing, equal inheritance, equal value, equal worth. Here's what submission is uh, when it touches all of us. Submission is a humble recognition of God's order of society. That's all it is. That is why citizens are told to submit to the government. Unless that government is asking you to go against God's word, citizens submit to governments. There is a God-centeredness and awareness. I want you to see this. Look at, look at 5 verse 22. Because it's not just... Wives, submit to your own husbands. There's something more. There's, there's a Christological emphasis, a God-centeredness, an awareness of divine structure within these commands. Look at the wife's command, verse 22, chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to who? As to the Lord. You may not respect everything your husband does. My wife may not be pleased with everything I do. You may even lose respect for your husband, but you can respect Jesus Christ, who is sinless. That's the motivation to the wife's command. Look at the husbands. Look at verse 25 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as, as what? As Christ loved the church. Your wife may not always be lovable or even lovely, but that is not your motivation Your motivation is Christ's love. Look at the children's command. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. 
Every one of these commands is attached to a Christ-centeredness. You may not have the most incredible parents in the world. They may not let you do everything every other parent does. That could be good. And it may be overly restrictive. But there's more going on in your obedience and you are obeying them as you would obey the Lord even when you think it's unfair. I'm not talking about abuse or mistreatment or neglect. I'm just talking about different. Look at bond servants. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, he's talking to Christians. Christian bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere, with a sincere heart as you would who? As you would Christ. All of these commands in this passage are linked to serving Jesus Christ, having an awareness of Him. Christian workers should have a different attitude and work ethic because there's something bigger going on. By the way, go back up to the hinge command. Go back to chapter 5, verse 21. It is the same for this sort of front door that swings open into the house. And it says this, submitting yourselves one to another. Why? Out of reverence for who? For Christ. There is other passages where, where, where church members submit to the elders. Do you know the basis for your submission to the elders is not that they're better or perfect or that their preferences matter more? It is because that is God's divine design for His church. Our motivation is Christ-centered. So let's get this. Your motivation, wives, is not primarily husband-centered. Or husbands, it is not primarily wife-centered. Or children, it's not parent-centered. Or parents, children-centered. Or employees, employer-centered. It is centered on Jesus Christ. That's the big picture of this passage. That's the theology that undergirds this because these relationships are telling the world and our children and our wives and our husbands something about Jesus Christ, something about God's love and living in union with Him. By the way, human authority is not unlimited authority and submission is not unconditional submission. We obey right up to the boundary that if crossed is now disobedience to God. So a, a Christian wife can submit to her unbelieving husband up to the very boundary until he is asking her to do something that is unbiblical. God-given authority must not command what God forbids. As, as Peter said to the Sanhedrin in, in Acts 5.29, he says this, to religious people, we must obey God rather than men. Now remember, I want you to get this picture in your mind as we're handling this passage. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was subject to His earthly parents who were both sinners. His real mom, Mary, was a sinner. She needed Christ as her Savior. His Human father representative, Joseph, was a sinner. He submitted to them. He also submitted to God, his father, who, by the way, is also his what? His equal. You have Jesus, the sinless son of God, submitting to sinful human beings as his parents and to God, the father, his equal. Another interesting feature in this passage is that each pair of relationships has reciprocal duties put forward. And in each case, it's not their right, 
But it's a caution against the improper use of authority or the abuse of it. For example, husbands are to lead with love and care for their wives. Parents are not to provoke their children, but nurture them. Masters are not to threaten, but to treat with justice and fairness. Now, I want to take the the remainder of our time to look at the specific duties of each person. Wives and then husbands. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The wife submits on her own in obedience to the Lord and to her own husband. Okay, newsflash. Tony submits to Steve. She does not have to submit to all you other men. She doesn't. Now, as a believing woman... We'll go back up to verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. There will be that spirit. It's not like an in-your-faceness. But she, she submits to her own husband, to me. And submission is not by my demand. It is not the demand of her husband. My, my children have never heard, maybe jokingly once or twice, but, but I, don't, I don't even think that. They've never heard me say, woman, submit. They've never heard that. Ever. And Tony's never heard that from my mouth. As sort of a domineering, harsh, that's not my command. The command is to her. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Two reasons are given for her submission. I want you to see this. Uh, They're at least implied. Creation and redemption. Now, don't get lost on those two words. But I want you to see this. Look at verse 23, the very first part. For... Here's one of the reasons the husband is the head of the wife. Now, two other passages look back to Genesis chapter 2 for an understanding of God's created order. Just write these down. I will read them. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 to 12, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Let me read to you what Paul says to the Corinthian church. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. See, he has a head too. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So we're not talking about lesser worth. We're talking about equality, but, but a differing structure. Verse, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The order, the emphasis here is on the order and purpose at creation. So because Paul is going all the way back to Genesis 2, this cannot be dismissed as simply a cultural bias. 1 Timothy 2, 11-13. And remember, this letter was written to a young man in ministry, and it says in the letter why it was written, that we, that we might know how to understand when we gather as a church. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is in reference to teaching, preaching to men. Why is that the case? Paul's going to tell you because it it seems very narrow. Not because she's not a better teacher or more interesting or even more effective. There is a, a single theological reason why that is the case. Verse 13 of 1 Timothy 2, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's not fair. That's how God did it. Adam didn't even have a say in it. 
So here you have Paul going back again to Genesis 2 for this divine structure. Okay, well, that, oh, that's Paul. He's, he's a chauvinist. Okay. Now, you'll hear those arguments, by the way. Okay, Jesus himself went back to creation to support his view of the structure of human relationships. In Matthew 19, 4-6, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, Genesis 2, made them male and female? He's supporting his argument for the structure within the home with the creation text. This is not male chauvinism, but creationism. So let's be very clear. Submission is not about ability, but order. Not about superiority, but structure. Not about dominance, but divine design. There's something about creation that, that, that provides a structure. Now, redemption. Look at verse 23 of Ephesians 5. Even as Christ is the head of the church. Oh, so that's, this is the theology. This is, this is something bigger than just a single home, than just a single married couple. Even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and I don't want husbands to miss this, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Jesus is the head of the church. Okay, think of, think of a body. That's the analogy. That's the picture. That head, it gives life and health to the body. But it is not simply His Lordship that is emphasized here, but His being our Savior. Let me ask husbands this question this morning. Does that describe your leadership? Is there something in your leadership in the home that is redemptive and saving and life-giving? Is that the quality of your leadership? Do you know that these words to first century wives and bondservants would have been affirming and empowering, not enslaving and oppressive? This would have been good news to Christian homes. Let's look at the husband's duties. Look at verse 23. And it's not where it starts. We're not starting with His command. We're actually starting with an indicative rather than His imperative. The husband is what? The head of the wife. Husbands, it does not say, be the head of your wife. It simply states a fact. That's what an indicative is. It, it is either the book is on the table. That's an indicative. The imperative would be, put the book on the table. Or the car is stopped. Or stop the car. There's a difference. The husband is the leader. Or husband's lead. It simply says this, the husband is the leader. One man has called it the husband's inescapable leadership. You can run from it, but then you're leading by absence. You can neglect it, then you're leading by passivity. You can abuse it. Well, then you're leading with harshness. See, it's just you're leading. So the real question for husbands and fathers is not, are you the leader? But rather, how are you leading your home? That moves into his command, sort of the basis of the husband's leadership. Husbands, love your wives. How? That's the command. Love them. And I'm going, to, I'm going to be treading on very thin ice here. 
But if, if your husband did not get you a chocolate box of candies and flowers on Friday, it does not mean he didn't love you. It's not what the text is talking about. I think they should have. I think they should have. Or done something. Okay, but I'm not going to buy into the commercialism of Valentine's Day. But I just I want to encourage wives here who feel overlooked and undervalued. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. As a matter of fact, when it's talking about the husband's command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he introduces two analogies. The first one is what we just said, as Christ loved the church. I want you to see the five verbs that shape that action of love. Look at, look at verse 25 to 27. I'm not going to explain these. We're just going to read these. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25, as Christ, here's the first verb, loved the church. And, second verb, gave himself up for her. 26, that he might, third verb, sanctify her, set her apart, make her holy. Having, fourth verb, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, so that he might, fifth verb, present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Perhaps even a picture of the bride in her wedding garment, this beautiful picture of what Christ is doing to his bride. Five verbs, five actions which teach us that Christ's leadership over the church has an effect. It does something. It produces something. It's not static. It doesn't just come home and veg out on the sofa and watch football. There's an effect that Christ's leadership has. Christ made his people lovely. He did not find them lovely. He has embraced them despite of who they are, not because of who they are. And He doesn't leave them where they are when He finds them. He changes them. He sanctifies them. He sets them apart. He beautifies them. Do you know, as as our bridegroom, Christ, the husband of us, the church, He does not crush us, even though we're imperfect. He doesn't berate us. Rather, He sacrifices Himself to save her. And like Christ, the husband will love his wife enough to want to protect her and deliver her from trouble of every kind. That is what Jesus is doing as you look off into the future. He is making all things new. He is preparing a place for us. Here's the second analogy. If the first one was too high, and I think this is why Paul does that, look at verse verse 28. The husband must love his wife as he loves himself. That that almost seems crass, right? After the high theology of love your wife as Christ loves the church. Okay, if that one misses you, then you love your wife as you love yourself. Look at verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. If I slip on ice, I don't just willfully go down head first. I'll do what? I'll put my arm out. I'll protect my head. If I get a thorn in my foot, I don't just keep walking. I stop. I remove the thorn. If I crave Chick-fil-A, hopefully not today, but if I crave Chick-fil-A or a nice block of Swiss cheese, it's not long before I satisfy my hunger or probably craving. It's not always a hunger. When I am weary and exhausted, I give myself sleep. I care for myself. You care for yourself. 
And if, and if you miss and can't fully grasp the love of Christ for His church, at least do this. Love her as you love yourself. Treat her as you want to be treated. Spiritual leadership exceeds the basics of food and shelter and that it provides spiritual protection and loving and loyal companionship. Therefore, we value the church as Christ does. But if we fail to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we fail to understand the theology of this passage. here's, Here's what is at risk as we conclude. If we don't lead with love, we actually fail give a snapshot of the gospel in our own home to our wife and to our children. Look at verse 32, because this is where where it was all building. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife. he, He loops back. He gives the theology again. It refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul is telling Christian wives and Christian husbands to think in a radically different way than their surrounding culture. When the Spirit takes up residence within a believer's heart and we are controlled by the Spirit, we obey its promptings. This is what it looks like. Wives willingly submit to their own husbands. Husbands willingly love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then our homes become proof that what we say about God is true. That the gospel transforms. Let me ask you, does your home serve as a snapshot of the gospel? A snapshot of God's transforming power? A snapshot of the beauty of Christ and His church? In Revelation 21, verse 5, it says this, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new whether we struggle right now with personal failures or regret or painful singleness or loveless marriages or divorce or widowhood or discontent god is doing something right now he is active in the gospel he is making all things new he forgives and washes and cleanses and there is always hope in him Christ who loves us, who loves you specifically and is setting you aside and preparing you for something so much more better and a certain glorious future. He said, Behold, I am making all things new. Take hope. Change where you need to change. But take hope in Christ's love for you. Let's pray.